Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians and chapter number 6. We are in our final two messages of the book of Ephesians and we've had a good time walking through this wonderful book as we've been seeing that the theme and the idea of the book is that God wants to bring glory to himself by the church. And how was one of the number one ways that God can get glory by the church? By having unity in the church. And we've explained what is the secret of having unity inside of a body of Christ? How is it that we could have unity inside of this building that's fitly framed by everyone keeping their eyes on the Lord. That is this open secret that we must keep our eyes on Jesus. And if you have your eyes on Jesus and I have our, my eyes on Jesus, we're going to be going to the same place. We have the same goal. We will be walking together and that's unity. And that's the whole purpose and desire for every church. And that it's made in such a way that even the angels and the principalities up in heaven are looking down and going, wow, look at this church Only God could have done that. Only God could have put that together. Only God could have done it in such a way. And that's how God gets glory in the church. That it makes people, um, it, it amazes even the principalities and powers when a bunch of sinners who've rebelled against God get saved and willingly look at God and say, God, we are following after you. That's an amazing thing. That's a wonderful thing. And as we go through here, now we are getting to the end of Ephesians and we're hitting very practical messages. Now, because we're supposed to be looking at Jesus, how does it change our behavior? Because we're looking at Jesus, how does it change the way we speak? Because we're looking at Jesus, how does it change how we do our day-to-day lives? And if you don't mind, look with me in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And we come to a very important and well-studied portion of the Word of God, the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And notice, with me in verse number 10. The book of Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse number 10, the word of God says this, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in his power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness." And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Ephesians chapter 6? The book of Ephesians chapter 6, and we notice a phrase that is actually mentioned twice in this passage. Ephesians chapter 6, first of all, in verse number 11, where it says, The whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. And then once again in verse number 13, where it says, The whole armor of God. And with the Lord's help, we'd like to go through this passage and explain about the armor of God. The armor of God. Of God. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. Thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for the safety and the health that you've allowed us to have. Thank you for the opportunity to gather around by your word that we could learn more about you, that we could learn more about what you have for us, and that you could help us to understand the armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. Lord, I'm asking that again, that your Holy Spirit would take charge, that you would be the one to explain and to illuminate by your Holy Spirit the armor of God and how important it is that we who are in the battle continue 
to put it on, to be dependent upon you, to allow you to win the fight. Lord, again, guard my lips, guard my tongue, guard my thoughts. And that the things that you once said will be what's said and the way that you want it said. And that you would refrain my lips for saying anything that should not be said. Lord, again, fill me with your precious spirit. And we're just depending that your work, word would do its own work today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The whole armor of God. Now, without a doubt, if you've been saved for any stretch of time, you realize immediately you're in a battle. You said, when I got saved, I didn't sign up for it. I'm sorry you didn't sign up for it, but you're in a battle. We understand that we have enemies. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you are in a spiritual warfare. Whether you're a pastor, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a new Christian, you're in a spiritual battle. And it is an awful fight. It is a consuming fight. It is an unrelenting fight. It's a fight that has no vacation, no breaks. It's a fight that goes on. And so because we're all thrust into the fight, we have to be prepared for the battle. And we must be prepared for the battle. And the armor of God is what we do to put on to be prepared for the battle. Notice with me in verse number 10. It says, finally, my brethren. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. And he's encouraging the church of Ephesus about having unity in the church. And keeping their eyes on the Lord. And that how to live and some practical things inside of their life. From their homes to how they deal with their employer at work. And now he comes to the ideas. He's wrapping up. He says, finally. He says, here's some important thoughts. I want you to know this. He says, finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. <laughs> he says, I want you to be strong. I want you to know the power of God's might. I want you to have this prepared. He says, why? Verse number 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to stand against the wiles of the devil. You understand Satan hates you. Most of all, he hates God. And the number one way he tries to attack God is by attacking his people. And if he can get God's people to go ahead and mess up, guess what? That's a bad name for God. For example, you have a preacher who is in his life trying to help a lot of people, been preaching the word, and then the preacher messes up. You understand how many people look up and say, see that God wasn't real, that wasn't, and God gets a bad name. It doesn't matter uh, who's around you. When you as a Christian mess up, your neighbors see you. The people down the street see you. Your employers see you. Your coworkers see you. Your family see you. Now, I understand we do mess up from time to time. But how do we prevent messing up is the armor of God. We must put on the armor of God because we're in a fight. And our... Our goal is to bring glory to God and that Satan hates us. And how are we going to stop the attacks of Satan? How are we going to be able to stand when he's trying to knock us down and make us fall and make us fail? The armor of God. Notice with me in verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, Against the rulers of darkness in this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. As we begin to talk about the uh, armor of God. And explaining about the battle we're in. If you're in the habit of writing things down. I want you to write down this. This is an important thought. I want you to write it down. This is something you need to underscore. You need to go back to it. People are not our enemy. People are not our enemy. You are not fighting against that person down the street who you believe hates you. You're not fighting against your boss. You're not fighting against your parents. Doesn't matter how old you are and who your parents are. You're not fighting against your parents. You're not fighting against your boss, your employer. You're not fighting against the president. Now, hopefully you're not fighting against your pastor. You understand people are not the enemy. We have to understand and realize that because we can't go to war with people. That's the wrong enemy. And we're fighting against the wrong thing. 
Satan is the enemy and we have to fight against him. Notice again in verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But who do we fight against? But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We have plenty of enemies without trying to make new enemies. Our enemy is Satan and his influences. Satan and his goals. Satan and his influences. That's who we're fighting against. People are not the enemy. This is important because if we're in the spiritual battle, you need to fight the wrong person or right person. You need to make sure that you're fighting against the right enemy, not against the innocent villagers over here. You're fighting against the enemy. You're fighting against those people who are against you. And people are not, they sometimes may be misled, but we have to understand that unsaved people are influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the enemy, not people. That another Christian who may not be mature or may be backslidden or may be a misunderstanding, they are not the enemy. Satan and his influence against the enemy. You understand that we're talking mainly about having unity in the church. And Paul says, I want to take a pause here, that the person inside of the church next to you is not the bad guy. You may have a disagreement, but they're not the bad guy. We have Satan to fight. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the bad guys. That the person next to you is not the bad guy. You understand that in churches today, churches are blown up because church people are fighting against church people. It is the wrong enemy. And when church people are fighting against church people, you're not going to have unity in the church. We have to remember we have the... To, we need to have the correct enemy. And then it helps you to overlook that you, to tell yourself from time to time, and even pastor has to do this, they are not the enemy. They could aggravate the fire out of you. You feel like pulling your hair out and saying, why? They are not the enemy. You have to realize who the right enemy is, and you fight against the right enemy person. Notice as we go on. So now we go back to the armor of God. He talks about in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that we could fight against the right enemy. Uh, time out. Other people are not the enemy. Fight against the right enemy. Verse 13, as he goes back to his thought that he was going to, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having all done all to stand. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross. You understand. We are in a spiritual war. And we do have real enemies. We had to pick the right enemy. But we have real enemies. And how are we going to be able to withstand. When the enemy is trying to fight us. Putting on the whole armor of God. Now that we've introduced this. Let's now go through and touch. Each of the pieces. Of the armor of God. If you don't mind, let's go through here. And the first piece that we run into is the truth. The truth. Notice with me in verse number 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, when we come to the idea, the very first piece that we have to put on is the truth. It says to put on, uh, gird your loins with truth. This is going to be the pelvic area uh, that you're putting it on to protect uh, this vital part inside of your body. That you gird your loins with truth. What is truth? <laughs> well, truth is the declaration of God's word. That God has given us the truth. We understand that there are a lot of things out there that are not truth. In fact, we live in an informational world. We are actually overloaded with information, but very little truth. And that we are going to have to have the truth. What does this mean? That we must know what we believe and why we believe it. If you do not know what you believe and why you believe it, you are vulnerable. By the way, this is why discipleship is so important. Developing the habit of obedience to Christ. Going through the basic things of trying to explain what we believe and why we believe it. You understand this is where most Christians in America, American Christianity is so vulnerable. Because Christianity has become a culture 
instead of a devotion to God. And so many people like the lifestyle of a Christian. Oh, look, I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. I'm a good moral person because we attribute Christianity with morality. But you understand, you could be a good person without being a godly person. There is a complete difference. There is a lot of good people out there who are not godly. And that's why we have such a hard time. That's why people say, Pastor, why are you being so mean? I mean, they're good people. We're not debating whether they're good people. We're trying to encourage them to be godly. And you understand that Christians need to know what they believe and why they believe it. And the answer should not be said that, why do you believe this? Because my pastor said so. That is not the right answer. You need to be able to take the Bible and show from the Bible what you believe and why you believe it. What does the Bible say about forgiveness? What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about creation? What does the Bible say about living a holy life? Do you understand there is many issues of life that could be answered from the Bible? And that today there is many Christians who profess to be Christians who do not have the truth. And they are vulnerable, very vulnerable, because they don't know how to respond when confronted with something that is not true. Because they do not have the truth. And so what is the very first piece? Before you put on the armor, before you put on everything else, what is the very first piece that you must put on? The truth. You must know what the truth is. You must know what you believe and why you believe it or you're going to be vulnerable in the attack. As we go on, we now put on the next piece of armor. Notice with me once again in verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Now we understand the very first piece of righteousness we put on is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we understand that we're all sinners. And that means there is none righteous, no, not one. And that the only person that is right is God. And that when we accept him to be our savior, his righteousness is placed on our account. That means that, doesn't mean that now that we're Christians, we're no longer sinners. It just means that we're forgiven and we have Christ's righteousness, that we're saved by grace. Now, as we go on beyond that, the breastplate of righteousness is now overlaid. It starts with Christ's righteousness, but then it's now overlaid with right living, with right living. That's righteousness. You understand that if you have sin in your life, you have what is called a chink in your armor. You have a vulnerable spot within your armor that the enemy can take advantage of and stab you. So let's just imagine that you have a piece of armor that has holes all over it, all right? So you got a breastplate, and it's got a hole here and a hole here. Maybe it's worn down here. You know what the enemy is going to do? The enemy is not going to hit the metal part. It's going to hit the holes. It's going to find where your soft spots are, where your vulnerable spots are, and that's where it's going to hit you. So let's say that you're trying to fight in the Christian life and you're telling everyone, I'm a Christian and I want to do what's right. You need to get saved. But you have righteousness problem. You have a sin problem. You know what those people that you're trying to help is going to do? They're going to point out the unrighteousness in your life. And what are you going to say? When you say, you're a sinner and you need to get saved. Yes, but I caught you stealing from the cash drawer the other day. It's going to be very hard. You understand that if you're with your buddy in the bar and you're kicking back some some brews and you say, hey, let me tell you that you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. They're going to look to you and say, there's something wrong with that picture. You're not going to be able to influence. You're not going to be, they're going to be able to point out the holes in your righteousness, and it's going to make you ineffective in the battle. And so we start off by girding our loins with truth that you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. Then we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness, which starts off with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it continues being overlaid with right living on our part. 
Now we come to the next piece of armor and verse number 15. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now for some reason this gets overlooked and ignored. But this is going to actually going to be one of the key pieces of the armor. Then it says have your feet overlaid uh, <laughs> with shod and with a preparation of the gospel of peace. And having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now if you could allow me to... Um, give one of my personal preferences. And this isn't Bible, this is personal preference, but uh, everyone has idiosyncrasies, uh, little things, little quirks. Mine is I hate sandals. I absolutely, I hate sandals, flip-flops, so much that I forget, forbid my, my kids to have it. Uh, you say, why? I, it's nothing biblical, just something craziness in my mind. I grew up wearing cowboy boots all of my life because I lived out in the ranch. And you understand, if you have a cow or a horse step on your foot, you need some sort of protection because it hurts. It's a big animal. And it got to the place where, you know, that's a vulnerable spot. Man, to, to be able to take my cowboy boot, what I wanted to do, and this is one of those weird things in me. If I saw someone with sandals, I want to take the back of my cowboy boot and just jam right into their foot and say, ha, ha, because it's a vulnerable spot. I want you to imagine in your mind a knight that has full plate armor. He's got the face uh, plate. He's got the breastplate. He's got armor. He's got the gauntlets. He's got the the leggings. But he's wearing flip flops out in the battle. He says, "I've got you." You know where the first place I'm going to attack him at? The feet. I'm going to step on his toes. I'm going to you know why? That's his vulnerable spot. All right. And so the Bible says that we need to have our feet. Shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now as a practicality, what does this mean? Well, this carries the idea of where we're going to fight the battle. Where are we going to fight the battle? How do we travel, by the way? We don't walk on our hands, we walk on our feet. And where we travel at is where we're going to go. Right? Most of you figure that out. Where you travel at is where you're going to go. All right? So you understand that we are going to determine where the battleground is going to be. We've already determined that every single one of us are in a fight. We, we agree with that. You are in, if you're a Christian, you're in a spiritual battle. We also understand that if you're a Christian, you can't hide from spiritual battle. You are going to be in a battle no matter where you're at. So when you have your feet shod with the gospel of peace, this is carrying the idea you are going to pick where the battleground is at. The Bible talks about that we as Christians, we are to be on the offensive rather than the defensive. In Matthew chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking to his disciples and he is saying uh, <laughs> that the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Now, if you're thinking in military tactics, if you are standing outside the gates of hell, are you on the defensive or the offensive? Well, if you're outside the enemy's gates, you have traveled to the enemy and are bringing the fight to the enemy rather than the enemy being at your gates. You understand? So this is a locational thing. That if we put the fight to the enemy, that means the fight is not back at home. You understand? That you will determine where the fight is. If you put on the gospel, shod your feet with the gospel of peace, that means you are traveling to the enemy and bringing the fight to the enemy. If you decide that you are not going to be active in bringing the gospel or piecemeal the gospel, I'll give a track every now and again. Uh, that's a good start, but you understand where the battleground is going to be at? Your home. Your, the battleground, the fight is going to be in your home because the enemy is going to fight you somewhere. We have the opportunity of choosing where the battleground is at. If you take the fight to the enemy and you're trying to win souls and you're constantly out there to try to tell people about the Lord, that's where the enemy is going to meet you at. If you choose that you're not going to pass out tracts, you're not going to try to tell people about the Lord, the enemy is going to attack you at home and you're going to be on the defensive and your home's not going to be a sanctuary. It's going to be the battleground. And by the way, most of us have been there, done that, that we've been there where the battleground has been in our home and it is not a good place to be. 
This is why this piece of armor is one of the most important pieces of armor. It's talking about not only protecting our feet, but that it carries the idea that we are carrying the battle. We are picking the battleground. That is going to be key in winning the spiritual battle. You understand we all need a home to be our sanctuary and not where we fight. We need that place where we could rest, recuperate, be safe from the battle. By the way, the same thing is true of the church. That if we are constantly going out and bringing the battle out to them, the battle's not in here. You understand? We are picking the location of the battleground. And any military leader says that is always the key to winning the battle. Whether it's Alexander the Great or to any military uh, doctrine where you get Napoleon or anyone else. All of them said the battle is going to be won or lost by where the battlefield and who controls it. If we are going to win this spiritual warfare that we're in. If we're going to keep getting victories. We have to pick where the battleground is at. So now we have that our loins are girt with truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have our feet shod with the gospel of peace. Notice as we go on and we see some more about this spiritual armor that we have. The whole armor of God. Notice with me in verse 16. Above all. So this is carrying. This is important. This is very important. Above all. Taking the shield of faith. Whereby we should, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Here we have the shield of faith. Remember faith is believing God. And his promises, standing on the promises of God. It says, above all, you take the shield of faith. You understand when a soldier had a shield, this is a shield that he would have on his arm that would protect his body. And so when arrows came, fiery darts would come. When the enemy would attack, they would put that shield and it would protect him from it hitting him. You understand, you may have some armor, but I'd rather hit something protecting me than even hit the armor. So this is a way to protect having a shield of faith, trusting that God is God, trusting that God is going to do what he's going to do, that I'm following after him. And what it does is it able to push and allows you to keep advancing forward while the shield, while the faith is taking the blows and not you taking the blows. Having the shield of faith that if I'm going to go out and battle, I'd rather have, let's bring it futuristic, I'd rather have a force field around me, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like to have something protecting you? The shield of faith. That I trust that God is going to protect me. That I trust that God is good. And that God is right. That God is going to win the battle. That it is him that I'm trusting. That shield of faith. That when the fiery darts come. As long as my faith in the Lord. Remember it's not how much faith I have. It is the object of my faith that matters. As long as we're looking to Jesus, you could have small faith or big faith. It is the object of your faith that matters. I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm trusting in God. He is going to work it out. It may be rough right now and the battle seems like it's raging and I can't stand it anymore. But I'm trusting that God is going to protect me. That God is going to work. Having the shield of faith. Notice as we go on and we see more about the armor of God. That we have our loins girt about with truth. Carrying the breastplate of righteousness having our feet shod with the gospel of peace along with it that we have the shield of faith and now we come to another piece in verse 17 and take the helmet of salvation take the helmet of salvation our service of God is never effective if we don't have assurance of our salvation If you don't know for sure that you are saved, that you know, that you know, that you know that you're saved, you will not be effective in battle. You need to know without a doubt. You understand that someone who does not know for sure they're going to heaven, they hope or guess or think. When they serve God, they're serving God in order to get something from God. Well, if I serve God good enough, that maybe I'll get to heaven. If I do this, maybe God will let me go to heaven. If I do this, this will kind of, maybe God will show me. You understand that's not how we should serve God. I serve God not in order to get something from him. I serve God because of what he's already done for me. 
You see, that's a whole different motive. It's a whole different tactic. I serve God because he has saved me. Because I'm thankful for what he's done for me. I can advance forward. It's out of a thankful heart instead of something trying to get something from God or make sure. Without the assurance of salvation, no one will be effective in serving God. You must know that you know that you know. You say, how do I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? Well, the Bible explains in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How do I know I have eternal life? Because the Bible tells me so. You see, I'm not going to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm not going to heaven because I feel like it. I'm not going to heaven because I've done good things. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a preacher. I'm not going to heaven because I married right. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a pastor. I'm not going to heaven because I think I raised my kids well. I'm going to heaven because God made me a promise. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, that was me, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Someone says, how do you know that you're going to heaven? Because the Bible says I am. Because I did found out what the Bible said, how I could know that I could have forgiveness of my sins, how I could have peace, how I could have the promises that God said. I found out what the Bible said and I did that. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, there was a time when I was a young man a young child, when someone opened the Bible and showed me from the Bible that I was a sinner. And I didn't need much convincing to know that I was a sinner. But he also showed me from the Bible that because of my sin, I owed God a price, I owed God a wage, and I deserved to go to an awful place called hell. And I believed the preacher when he told me that. But I didn't want to go to that awful place called hell. So he showed me the good news that Jesus died for me to offer me forgiveness of sins. And that all I had to do was accept the promise that God made me and I would have forgiveness of sins. And I remember where I was at in the pew I was sitting in when I bowed my head and I accepted Jesus to be my personal savior. You know what God did? Is that he did something in my life. He forgave me of my sins. You say, but you were a small child. I was six years old at the time. You know what God did afterwards to give me assurance of salvation? Is he had the preacher come to my house and follow up. And he went to my parents and went to me and sat me down and says, Now the next step of faith is baptism. Now baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is just a picture. But before you get baptized, you have to know that you're going to heaven. And in my little six-year-old brain, I was going, Why does he keep saying this? I know I'm going to heaven. And over and over, because you know when you work with children, you want to be very, very careful. And you don't want to give them false salvation, but you want to deal with them honestly. And over and over, he said, now you need to know for sure. Are you sure you know you're going to heaven? Are you sure? And he dealt with me very thoroughly. And again, in my six-year-old brain, I'm thinking, I know I'm going to heaven. Why does he keep making a big deal? But you know what God was doing? Is that he was making it something that I could go back and that even as a six-year-old, I knew in my heart that I was going to heaven because of what the Bible said. And I was able to defend it. God was nailing it down deep. So I would never have to doubt my salvation. And being saved at a young age at six years old, I have never doubted my salvation. Doesn't mean I was always been perfect because I was a little wretch still. But I had an evidence of a changed life. That's proof of salvation. Of an evidence of a changed life. But he also nailed down my salvation at an early age, and it helped me out for the rest of my life to know for sure that I was going to heaven. You understand? That's what that helmet of salvation is, is that, that assurance. I know I'm going to heaven. As long as I doubt, I'm not going to be effective in the battle. I'm going to be able to have my head exposed inside of the battle, and I'm going to be open for attack. You have to have the helmet of salvation. You understand there's people who doubt their salvation and it's the battlegrounds in their mind. This is where they're having the roughest time is inside of their mind. Notice if you don't mind as we continue to go on that we have, we have our loins girded with truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the feet shod with a preparation of, of, <coughs> of the gospel. We have the shield of faith. We have 
the um, helmet of salvation. May I take a quick pause and say, you know where most of our armor is at? Is in our front. The armor is not in the back. You know why? Because we're always going to be on the offensive and not the defensive. We're advancing forward and not retreating. We're always moving forward. That's how God designed it. But notice as we now come to our only offensive weapon. Notice with me if you don't mind in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. Do you understand that we only have one offensive weapon? Only one. And that is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hold your uh, turn with me, if you don't mind. And let's look and see as the Bible describes the sword of the spirit even more. In the book of Hebrews, chapter number four. The book of Hebrews, chapter number four. What we see here is that our only offensive weapon, the only tool that we have to fight the battle, the rest is defensive. The only offensive, the only way we could win the battle is by the word of God. Notice with me in the book of Hebrews chapter number four, the book of Hebrews and chapter number four. Notice with me in verse number uh, 12, Hebrews chapter four and verse 12. Notice what it says. For the word of God is quick. That word quick means alive. You understand that the word of God is alive. It's not a dead book. It's a living book. It's able to speak to me. It's able to tell me what I need. It's a a living book. In fact, the same breath that God breathed into man to make him a living soul is the same breath that he breathed inside of this book. It is a living book. For the word of God is quick and powerful. That word powerful, uh, the root word is the same word where we get our word dynamite. It's explosive power. But you know what happens when you leave leave a uh, track at someone's door? You're throwing in a grenade. It's explosive power. It'll get its work done. That the word of God is quick and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. You understand that we have the benefit of history. And studying through history. That probably the, the, the sharpest swords ever made by man. Would be the Japanese katana. That made by great swordsmen. And they had a special process of actually taking the metal. And bending it a thousand times. And the swordsmiths would work quite hard on it. And then what they would do. Is that they would have several different tests. That they would perform on this sword in order to make sure that it was that it was um, ready to be used. The first test they would do was what was called the silk test. And what they would do is they would take that Japanese made sword. Made by the finest craftsmen. And they would take the sword and they would put it blade up. Then what they would do is they would take a piece of silk. And you know how fine silk is. And they would take that piece of silk and they would drop it. Just drop it. Over that sword. And what would happen is that that blade would be so sharp. That as that piece of silk landed on the sword. That silk would actually be cut. And what they would do is afterwards they would pick up that silk. And if there were any frayed edges. If there was anywhere that it was not a smooth cut. That sword's not sharp enough. We have to go start all over again. That was test number one. Test number two came with a samurai. Now, we understand that their culture was different than ours. And right, wrong, or indifferent, the samurai had the, the power of life and death over all others. And so what they would do is after they would get their sword, they would line up five peasants. Want you, 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 you. Congratulations, you're going to be the test of the sword. And they would line the peasants up, heel, toe, heel, toe, right next to each other. They would take the sword, and the samurai would take the sword and swing it through All the bodies. And if it would go through three and get stuck on four. It would be considered the three body sword. Which was a pretty good sword. But the very best legendary swords. Would go with one swing. Go through all five bodies at once. Now again we don't condone the killing of peasants. But you understand we're talking about the sharpness of a sword. That's a sharp sword isn't it? But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing also to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. You understand that the, that the word of God, the sword of the spirit, is so sharp that it could actually divide where your soul and spirit meet? 
that's pretty sharp. Notice that it's piercing even to the dividing of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It is so sharp that inside of your bones is what is called the marrow. And that the sword of the spirit is so sharp that it actually can divide out and squeeze in between the bone and the marrow inside of your body. Now that's pretty sharp. It's using figurative language to say how sharp this thing is. That the word of God can deal with every problem. By the way, if you came to the enemy with a sharp sword like that, you have a good chance of winning, don't you? As long as you could use your sword effectively. Notice this, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the hearts. You know that this living word of God knows what you think and why you think it. That's a pretty effective tool, isn't it? Now, we have to be able to use our sword effectively, right? For example, if I hand it you guys, an average person in here, an M16 and say, here you go, go fight the battle, and I don't train you how to use it, would you feel very comfortable with it? You understand you have to get used to the weight and how it goes. That's your weapon. You have to, that's why in the military, they actually make, courses, spend time teaching you how to use the weapon, how to be familiar, how to clean it, how to maintain it. There's a lot to it to be used to get to your weapon. We understand that there's different rates. For example, there's a novice. I've never held a weapon before. It feels uncomfortable. How do I hold it? Then you come to the idea that you get proficient. You use it more. I'm pretty proficient with it. Then you could get an expert in it, specialize in it till finally you master it. You understand that you have to work at it. You study to get the mastery of it. The Bible talks about in Second Timothy chapter number two. Now you understand that you have to practice using the sword of the spirit. If I was to hand you one of those sharp katanas, ah, let's have fun and let's go futuristic. If I had you a lightsaber, most of you would chop off your arm before, you know, you know, you destroy all the furniture. You understand if we hand it you that, that's a dangerous thing to hand someone who doesn't know how, what to do with it, right? Now, good. Got your attention now. Now, if you don't mind, take your Bibles and place it in your hand. You understand that there is a good way to, to train in using your weapon. The very first thing in order to learn how to use your weapon is you have to learn how to hold it. So grab your Bibles, hold it over your hand so I know you got a Bible. Everyone's got to participate. There you go. This would be one of those things where you're glad you didn't bring a big family Bible to church, right? Now, what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bible and place it in the palm of your hand. So in your open palm, place it there. We've got to teach you how to hold your weapon. Now, if all you did was hear the word of God, meaning you came to church and you heard a preacher like me preach the word of God, then take your pinky and put that around your Bible. That's as good as a grip that you have on the word of God. Now, how would you like to go into battle with a grip like that and say, all right, I'm going to fight you. All right you're not going to do, be very effective, right? We have to get a good grip on the Bible. So the very first thing is to hear the word of God. You have to add to it to read the word of God. So now put your ring finger around it. Now that's a little bit better grip, but you don't want to go fight in a battle with just that type of grip on your sword. That wouldn't be good at all, would it? You have to add to it to study. So now put your <coughs> next finger down. Now that's a little bit better grip but that's still not effective. You now have to add memorize. So hear, read, study, memorize. You got a little bit better grip, but it's still not as good as you could have. You have to now add meditate. That's your thumb. Now you finally got a good grasp on your sword. That doesn't mean you could use it well. You just now how to hold it. So to hear, read, mem uh, study, memorize, meditate. Now, guess what? You have to get used. You have to practice with your sword. That's You have to keep doing it over and over. Reading, studying, learning, familiar with it. Spend time with it. Now you start to learn how to use the sword effectively so you don't cut off your own arm. So that way you actually hit the enemy. So when the enemy hits you, your sword doesn't fly off and you run around like a little girl. Right? You understand? That... This is part of using your sword. This is the only offensive weapon we have. And we have to learn how to use our tool effectively. You understand that every answer or the best answers to the question is the word of God. 
That if we could give them the word of God, that's what's going to help them the best. Not our thoughts, not our opinions, not our preferences. We need to answer people with the word of God. Now, we're not over with yet. The Bible talks about that we need to put on the whole armor of God. The word whole means all of it. You need to have everything. You can't just go on piecemeal. You have to have all of it. That first of all, we have our loins girt about with truth. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. That we have our feet shod with the preparation of peace. That we put on, that we have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the sword of the spirit. But do you understand that this list is actually given another place in the book of Isaiah? And in the book of Isaiah, we actually find that there's a piece of armor that is not mentioned in the book of Isaiah. Turn, or in the book of Ephesians. Turn with me in the book of Isaiah and chapter number 59. And I want to show you one other piece of armor that Christians need to have. God's people need to have. Isaiah chapter number 59. Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, it mentions another listing of the armor of God. And I want you to be seeing another piece of the armor that we need to have. Isaiah 59, and notice with me in verse 17. Isaiah 59 in verse 17, notice this. It says, for he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with a zeal as a cloak. Notice this, this cloak of zeal. This word zeal carries the idea that we're supposed to be enthusiastic and ready to do what God has given us to do. You understand that the piece of armor that a lot of Christians have a hard time with is zeal. Most Christians are content with sitting in the pew and doing nothing until they are said, you go do this. You know, every Sunday school teacher should be saying, how can I feel my class? What can I do? Every bus captain should be saying, where are the little boys and girls that I could get to ride on my bus? Every Christian should be saying, who can I tell about the Lord? Who can I be praying for? What can I do? There's so much to advance in the fight. And yet most Christians lack zeal. They're content to sit in the pews and warm the pews, but very little, if you could use the word initiative. I'm going to go find something to do instead of wait for something to find me. I'm going to go with enthusiasm. That's another thing. Sometimes we do things, I'll do it because I have to. We should be enthusiastic about the things of the Lord. I'm excited to go to church. I can't wait to go to church. Oh, I'm looking forward to going soul wedding. I can't wait for this next series. I can't wait to teach my class. Oh, I can't wait for discipleship. I can't. This is good stuff. Where's our enthusiasm? Where's our en- encouragement? You understand if you're not excited about the things of God, why should someone else be? If you're not thrilled to go to church, why would anybody else go to church? Man, if you're not enjoying the Christian life, why would you invite someone else to be part of that same miserable life? You understand the Christian life is the greatest thing we can have. And the things of God, there is nothing like studying the word of God. Nothing like learning more about him. Knowing our great savior. Now, as we talked about the armor of God, let me tell you how Satan works. Remember, we are in a spiritual battle. So guess what Satan does? He takes our armor off backwards you know what he takes away first he takes away that cloak of zeal he takes away that cloak of zeal so we're no longer excited we're just there some of you need to find that cloak because satan's trying to take it away from you you know what he does after that takes away the sword of the spirit he makes it so you no longer read the bible you no longer search in it yourself you're no longer digging in it oh i know enough bible it's good i read it last year i'm still good You have to be in the word of God. But what he does is he takes away the zeal. Then he gets you out of your Bible reading. Uh Uh-oh. And then what he does is he starts working on your salvation. You know what makes people doubt their salvation? Sin. He starts to mess with your head. Are you really saved? Is this thing really real? Can I be doing something better on? Isn't there a better something on TV than going to church on Sunday? And then he takes away the shield of faith. Well... Is God really going to watch after me? It's not that big of a deal. I don't have to depend on God. He takes away the gospel of peace. You understand? We're not going to tell people about the Lord if we're struggling with everything else. Then he'll take away the breastplate of righteousness. 
No longer telling people about the Lord. No longer reading the Bible. Now sin starts going back in your life. And then finally he'll start dealing with the truth. And start trying to twist and pervert the truth from you. Until you are no longer effective in the battle anymore. So what do we need to do as Christians to fight against that? You need to do is keep the armor on. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord. That as soon as we keep our eyes off the Lord, we're vulnerable to attack. Keep your eyes on him. Keep advancing forward. Keep moving forward. As long as you're picking the battleground, that's where the fight's going to be. As long as you keep being enthusiastic. Man, I can't wait. This is good stuff. You keep practicing with your sword. You're going to keep being effective in the battle. But when you get tired, when you get your eyes off the Lord, when you're longer advancing forward, that's when you're vulnerable. And that's when Satan starts taking away that armor until you are exposed and no longer used in the battle. The Apostle Paul is trying to encourage this church to keep moving forward, to keep advancing, put on the whole armor of God, keep looking at God, because I'd hate to hear about church people no longer in church. I'd hate to hear about this church no longer serving God. That'd break my heart. How do you keep from that happening? Keep advancing forward. Keep moving forward. Keep your eyes on Jesus and take a step. You understand if you're going to fall, then fall forward. Just move forward. Sometimes it's one step. Sometimes it's a baby step. But move forward. Every single Christian in your life, you should be moving forward. Are you advancing forward more in your life right now than what you was a year ago? That should be a yes. If not, I encourage you to start moving forward. Are you moving forward more this week than you was last week? If not, I encourage you, take a step. You understand we're not talking about 10 miles down the road. We are saying you take your next step. And then the next step. And the next step. Keep moving forward in the spiritual warfare. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 920- Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.